This is the Counterculture Comic Podcast, and this week we're exploring the immigrant in all of us with The Arrival. This is the only comic book we're reviewing this week because we can't help ourselves. Brock saw Batman v Superman, because I made him, and I'm going to feed off the sweet sounds of his disappointment. At least we'll work in some Daredevil to balance it out. I'm Nick Hemsing. And I'm Brock Beauchamp. Yeah, uh, Nick... um see was it tuesday maybe said you have to go see batman v superman i'll pay for your ticket and i said no you're not going to pay for my ticket but i'm not doing anything tonight so maybe i'll go see it so i did and we're gonna have a lot to say about it later but first let's probably yeah let's save it for later we'll save it for later okay okay have you finished daredevil yet okay yes you have finished yesterday and your no, thoughts? To, uh, Friday then. Oh, okay. What's that? And your thoughts? Um, you know, I it started to dip. So the first se- the first season of Daredevil was slightly less comic booky than a, a lot of uh, you know a lot of you know other the Marvel movies and whatnot. Mm-hmm. The second season of Daredevil starts off with that same feeling, but then kind of dips, goes uh, much more comic book. Yeah, yeah. You know, working in more fantastic, you know, fantastic elements and more, you know, supernatural kind of elements. But um, I think I liked it because it kind of worked them in. Um the uh, I would say that the uh, the first season was still a, a overall better season. Oh, really? Uh, hmm. Yeah, and, and only because of Wilson Fisk. Yeah, Wilson uh, Fisk. I think was I think fantastic. that's what the the only thing that you were missing from this one was a truly engaging villain. Yeah, uh, the hand is really difficult to pull off, and I I I liked season two a little bit better. Um, even though toward the end, I thought, unfortunately, the weakest part of the season was maybe near the end, as opposed to the first season where the dip happened in the middle, and then it started escalating back up toward the uh, end point. Mm-hmm. But the hand are, they're difficult, and I view this, rightly or wrongly, I'm not sure, because season three hasn't come out, as kind of a staging for what comes next. I got that feeling also, and I also felt that because they because at the end of season two, they really leave um, they leave themselves lots of room. Yeah, they've um, the uh, there is lots of room for what's going to happen with Nelson and Murdoch. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, you've this is the time where you've really said, OK, the characters really all the uh you know the three, uh, or Karen Page, uh, Foggy Nelson, and and Matt Murdock are all on these three kind of different paths at the moment. Yeah, um, and that's where you're like, okay, we know we're going to have a season three, and it's going to be it's going to be interesting. Um, the um, I kind of don't want to see Electra for season three. No, um, I I prefer to see her go away for a season. Even though I loved her, she was perfectly cast. Electra's never been my favorite character, and I wanted to see the story, but I'm ready to go on to something else, and whether that's Bullseye... I, that's I what sub- I'm thinking. I have to imagine that Bullseye is going to be in the next one. I'm just... 
the uh, it's just my just it's just a gut feeling. There's yep. no teasing for it anywhere. Um, but I just think that it's going to be bullseye. I think so as well. Well, he's he's the only he's the gaping hole in Daredevil lore right now. And what I like best about season two and why I liked it better than season one, but just by a little bit, I think they're both very good, was they really did an excellent job of showing how self-destructive Matt Murdock is. And that is key to the Daredevil character because then in that final scene when Matt Murdock kind of loses it, it's the culmination of... A bunch of events and it shows how easily daredevil can go down a very very dark path and well, it's I, like the, it's it's the foundation for his guilt yeah the uh, there's it, it, overall i mean daredevil is nothing without his guilt yep um and the by the end of that he he gives like um there's almost like a tacit approval for what's happening around him that he would not normally have had. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he, you know, at the beginning of the season or the end of the episode, season one, he wouldn't have had. But, you know, there's uh, he almost starts to give he, he's basically giving into the to the fact that that he, he's giving into the fact that people will kill. To do something good. And he doesn't try as hard as he doesn't try to stop them. No. And. It really sets up the show to go into some of Daredevil's darkest and most engaging moments when he steps over the edge. Daredevil's history is littered with times where he's just gone too far. And that's one of the things that separates him from Batman. And they're very similar characters in many regards. But Batman keeps his moral compass. Uh, Daredevil doesn't. And... Murdoch will be consumed by this enormous guilt and it will force him off the ledge and he will have to, he will go down a really dark path and he will have to pick up the pieces, which just builds into his guilt more. And that's one of the most interesting pieces of the character, in my opinion. And the show is setting it up to play that out very, very well. Yeah, I, I think that in terms of setting, I think in terms of exploring Daredevil himself, or Matt Murdock himself, I think the show, the second season, definitely did far more of that than the first season. Yeah, um, I think that in terms of, um, I think that in terms of engaging with more people that weren't Matt Murdock, um, I felt that the first season was a little felt stronger to me. Mm-hmm. Um, simply because you had one, you had this one other storyline going on that was equally as interesting and equally as strong. Yeah, you, and- were, you were following Wilson Fisk, and you were watching Wilson Fisk become Kingpin, um, and why? And I thought, but I thought they did a pretty good job of balancing that in the second season with the. Okay, I don't like the Punisher. Never have. I like Punisher stories. I like Punisher arcs. I don't like the character because most of the time he's a juvenile wank fest. But, and I don't like the actor John Bernthal. But, <laughs> damn, they did a great job with the Punisher. Bernthal pulled it off. And then I don't like Karen Page either. But then the last half of the season, the Karen Page Punisher thing, it was a, 
it was a really good story uh and i liked the path they took each character you know the it's one of those funny things there's actors like clancy brown that the second you see him you know something important is going to happen with that guy because you don't bring him in otherwise Mm -hmm. the uh he's not a throwaway character no no not at all the uh he's uh so you, you see him like, ooh, Clancy Brown, Clancy Brown, something's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, and um, it's actually one of those things that kind of irritates me um, because mm-hmm. it's used a lot in police procedural shows. You see somebody you know doesn't. Uh, yes, and therefore you know their importance and your audience meta-knowledge takes you out of the story. Now, Clancy Brown was great. Uh, I like Can- Clancy Brown. But his mere appearance... Told me too much, and it's yeah. it's one of those things where it's really hard to balance it as a creator because you want these talented people who are recognizable because they're talented, but then on the other hand, kind of tearing the audience out of the story and getting them to project what's going to happen based on their meta knowledge. It's it's both rewarding and frustrating. Yeah. But uh, I thought that the the I thought that I was wondering how they were going to end the season with the Punisher being the Punisher. Um, the uh, I was kind of waiting for that that moment of um, where you know he's kind of burned out the rage. Yeah. Yep. The uh, yeah, I really had no idea where they were going with that character. For, and I say that in a good way. I, I think I, I, you know, I think at the beginning I had a pretty good idea, and I was right. Um, and I was right, and I was expecting a Punisher origin story, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so was, was I in that in that sense, as was I, and I knew he was going to live. Those were basically, mm-hmm. but how he was going to get there, they constantly surprised me in that regard. Yeah, they they they, they got you there in a way that was, I mean. It was uh, it was sympathetic, but you know, in the end, it didn't make the Punisher any less the Punisher. No, and they they didn't they didn't try to you know coddle him or warm him to the audience. They, no, they didn't. They let him. him at all. Yeah, they let him be the Punisher, and he, he's a dick. And mm-hmm. throughout the show, they they held fast to that and. It was one of the reasons why I liked this particular translation of the character. I still didn't love try to make him a good the, guy. I still love that they lifted that piece from the uh, from the Garthinus uh, Punisher Daredevil crossover. Oh, I haven't read that. That's the that's the one that's the one where he's tied to the column in chains, um, and his hand taped to a gun. Oh, okay. That's lifted from uh, a, a Garthinus written crossover. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, Garthinus and Steve Dillon. So interesting. Yeah, that was actually re- uh, just a fantastic scene. Uh, Daredevil fighting with a gun taped to his hand, but refusing mm-hmm. to use the gun was just fantastic. Yeah, but it's also the Punisher saying. It's also the Punisher saying the basically the credo of the punisher you know he's he's basically telling you what how how he views seeing bad people live 
Yeah. You know, the, uh, and you know, the choice that he makes. So interesting. I, I, I thought, it, I, yeah, I thought it was a great season. Yeah. Uh, Liz, liked it. Liz my, my wife, however, did not like Electra at all. Really? Uh, she actually, she didn't like the, she didn't like the Matt Murdock Electra um, interaction. You that know, though, she thinks she thought that she thought that Electra was fine. She just didn't like the the interaction. You know, though, the audience, in my opinion, at least, shouldn't like that because you're watching yeah. a character that you care about make really bad decisions. Yeah, and that's what Murdoch does every time he interacts with Electra. That's why I really liked that part of it. It's it's not one of those things you're supposed to like as an audience member because you care about. Matt Murdock and Daredevil. You're like, no, no, don't, don't do, do this. Don't you do moron. this. <laughs> but it's essential to the Daredevil character. Yeah. But did, um, uh... yeah, so I mean, another great offering by Marvel and Netflix, and you know, mm -hmm. they're they're three for three now. So let's yep. hop on over to the Arrival. So the Arrival is a silent comic, and as a description, I'm just going to give the liner notes as written by Jeff Smith, creator of Bone. A shockingly imaginative graphic novel that captures the sense of adventure and wonder that surrounds a new arrival on the shores of a shining new city. Wordless, but with perfect narrative flow, Tan gives us a story filled with cityscapes worthy of Windsor McKay. This is a silent book. It's about 110 pages long. And it came out in 2006. I first found it in when I went to the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art and it was in the gift shop, but I refused to drop the 40 bucks or whatever for it. So I looped back around to it, finally got around to it five, six years later. And this book is so good. I mean, I, I've i only read a few silent comics because I often struggle with them. This is easily the best silent work I've ever read. Uh, I felt that this book uh, would not have worked without being silent. Oh yeah, I mean it. It did. It used whatever mechanisms worked best for it throughout, and it's it's drawn in this. Uh, it's drawn just it's black and white or more like sepia tone, if to be accurate, in pencils, and it's all pencil shaded and. The art's beautiful, and then they the artist aged the pencils, I assume, in Photoshop to make them look like old photographs. And it has a very early 20th, maybe late late 19th century uh, feel to it, but it's very sci-fi. Uh, every everything is foreign yet familiar. Uh, and I felt that uh, the reason for that was brilliant. Um, and that is that the only way you can give people the idea of of making of being in a foreign land is to make a land that's foreign to everybody. Yes, absolutely. There's no when you when you look at this, there are things that are familiar, but the, the things that are familiar are fairly universal, um, like a ship or things like that. But mm -hmm. the things that um, uh, that are would be different in a new land are different all completely in in this story um you know words you know uh symbols and lettering and everything all foreign 
uh, yeah. just completely something made up. So when you look at it, when anybody looks at it, they are just as lost as know, the protagonist. Yeah. So you have to make up. So you have to try and decide what that sort of thing would be or what it's trying to tell you just as they would. And it just gives you that idea of being, you know, stranger in a strange land. I mean, the, the uh, you've got, you know, and then the, the process the you know, processing, you know, people treating you differently. Um, you know, the, uh, what it's like to just land somewhere. Um, and then, you know, you're not, com- not necessarily completely accepted right away. And, the uh, having to find work and having to find a place to live um, and the building, you know, e- you know, even such things as the buildings and everything are different to you. Yeah. Um, the, uh, there's nothing, th- there's almost nothing familiar mm-hmm. um, and it's disorienting and it's confusing and, and scary. Um, and I think one of the brilliant parts of the comic is also that, um, there are, um, there's obviously that, that, that impression that they're fleeing something bad in their, uh, in their homeland, mm-hmm. but then there's elements every once in a while something worked in that something is bad where, you know, there's bad things that they, he has to avoid in the new land, mm-hmm. um, you know, and people helping and people helping him do it. Um, and then, you know, the setting things up, you know, trying to trying to set things up so he can rejoin his family. Um, all of that is, you know, but all the while, everything is just is, is confusing. But, um, you know, people are, you know, he finds people that are helpful and the uh, it's I think it, it portrays an experience Um in a very smart way um, that so everybody could identify with it. Sure. And to give a quick rundown of the story, because I'm not really giving anything away here, it's set in, I, for lack of a better way of putting it, a steampunkish type of world. It's sci-fi, but it's retro sci-fi. And it's about a man whose environment, is where he lives with his family, is in... Um, either on the verge of war or just bad things are happening. It's very vague. And this book is intentionally ambiguous in many ways. And he gets on a steamship, travels to a new land and tries to make a home there so he can bring his family over. And this book is written by an Australian. So, but there are many elements that feel American to it. Um, especially when he arrives at the new land and there are these giant statues uh, greeting him as the boat sails into the harbor, very Statue of Liberty-esque. But the book is very ambiguous about where this is, where they're escaping from, It's and the sci-fi elements just play that up. And the ambiguity becomes this book's best asset because it like you said it 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 makes everything foreign yet keeps it vaguely familiar to everybody the i i think the el, what the steampunk element you could do by the way the the kind of design that you could have done for the world he 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 puts the, the main character in 
is you could do anything with. I mean, you could do anything with it as long as it makes it kind of foreign. The steampunk look just makes it look foreign. Mm-hmm. Um, the familiar elements end up being kind of like people. So it separates the people from environment. Um, the uh, So I, I think that that's what um, the steampunk atmosphere, atmosphere is is beautiful. It's interesting and whatnot. But the uh, overall, it it just helps highlight what uh, it helps highlight what stays the same. Yeah, and one of the things I found really interesting about this book is that there is no external conflict. I kept waiting for it, and it never came. And the further the longer I got along, and it didn't come, the more pleasantly surprised I was by it because this book easily could have turned the immigrants against each other or someone could have tried to take advantage of this man and you would get kind of baited into that every time this protagonist would interact with someone new and then you realize that your own cynicism was guiding what your your expectations at that point and yeah i mean it's just a really touching story about some of the best of what makes humans human yeah, the the uh, I felt with any sort of like real sort of um, you know uh, con- or any sort of real conflict might have would have drifted made the narrative of this fail. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, it was, after reading it all, you, definitely. Well, I, I and I and honestly, I, I didn't think I I felt early on because I, I really thought that early on this book advertised exactly what it was doing. Um, and I was looking, I, I didn't look for conflict. I, I, and, I, and I'm not and talking I, I, violent I'm, conflict. No, no, no. I'm, I'm just saying yeah. conflict. Yeah. Um, the, uh, uh, I'm just saying that I think that the book gave me what I really, what I got an, I got a, I, I picked up really early exactly what it was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I was not surprised there was no conflict. Um, I actually felt that the book was doing something that I expected it to do and I liked it. And that was the second it started showing me that it was going to be this, you know, this immigrant story. I said, this is, you know, I mean, this is something that everybody should try to relate to and and that, and that, you know, I, 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 you know, I start thinking of immigrants in my family and thinking of what it looks like. And then basically it makes this even more relatable. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, and the, uh, ultimately it's trying to convey, it's trying to convey a feeling to people that, that, uh, you know, certain things are, are, you know, not necessarily scary and, you know, disorienting and the, uh, and you know people will try to make it people will make it work but it's in that journey is important yeah uh, for people to know and there were so many just beautiful little touches in this book uh many of the immigrants he met who were very friendly to him and welcoming welcoming uh can't say it welcoming to him were and basically telling him you're one of us now weren't immigrants of his culture they were from vastly different places in this world and so it really was a melting pot 
of different cultures and they all had their own horror stories that they would tell this man and the way Mm. these stories were referenced these flashbacks to their homeland were just so good because they were again ambiguous they they weren't there's only one that is easily defined one scene that is easily defined as war the other ones have vague you know like dragon's tails that are infiltrating the city and it's hard to explain without just picking up this book and reading it and you could pick up this book and read it. I mean, that's yeah. that's really all I can say. It's, it's only going to take about an hour of your time. Don't try to blow through it because you will do yourself a disservice by trying to read this too quickly. You should stop and reel yourself back a few panels if you don't understand something because there's a ton of little touches strewn all about this that really supplement the story well. Uh, I, I felt that I – I don't think that I breezed through it, but it still only took me about a half an hour 45 minutes oh without words it's a quick read for sure yeah um no i mean i i i still felt that i wasn't breezing through it when i uh when i did it yeah i would stop and stare at a panel for a good 30 seconds a lot of the time just because they were so gorgeous they were well the uh that look that um that old photograph look I mean, it kind of mixed in sometimes with the, with old photograph, and then and then um, uh, I don't know how else to say that you know not the uh, there's a lot of some pictures that look like just like old photographs, and the rest of them look, and then some of them look like um, just pencil drawings. Just pencil drawings, I yeah. guess. Yeah, the aged that's, look would go in and out quite a bit, which didn't bother me even a little bit, but I did notice it. Yeah, the um, when it looked like a like an old photograph, I said, okay, well, I, I really need to differentiate because for, for a second I thought that each one of them was going to look like an old photograph, but I get but the panels that really are meant to look like photographs are are uh, um, like wrink have their uh, creases and whatnot to look like photographs. Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, but uh, it's a beautiful book. Uh, I recommend it to anybody. Yeah, I I can't recommend this one highly enough. Uh, I'm loath to bring up anything in comparison to Mao's. But I don't feel out of entirely out of sorts by mentioning this book on the level of Mao's because it is a true work of art. And we don't come across these type of really intensely arty but emotional projects very often in the podcast. And this is one of those books. And yeah, go read it. Yeah. So, uh, well, we got uh, we got all the feels out. We got the mm-hmm. you know our, our you know nostalgia sentiment, all that out of the way. Big stretch time. Stretch now time. we are going. Into a darker place, folks. We're going to talk about <coughs> Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice. Dark, dark, grim, dark, and more dark, and murder. My favorite, my favorite, murder uh, face. Yeah, my favorite <laughs> murder face, murder face. Um, the uh, my favorite co- uh, note on it. The uh, uh, note of it of last week was said uh welcome to the dc cinematic murder verse yep so we don't have to introduce this movie everyone has heard of it a lot of you have surely watched it and 
you know, I'm going to start off by saying I don't think this movie is bad. I think it deserves probably higher than 28% or whatever it has in Rotten Tomatoes. But it is the most frustrating film I've seen in a very, very long time. This this movie has insane peaks and valleys. And not once or twice, as, you know, stories ebb and flow. There weren't one or two missteps in this film. There were dozens. And just as you would get into something and you'd be 10 minutes into the movie and excited that something's happening, Zack Snyder would just sock me right in the nuts and show yeah. me one of the worst scenes I've seen in a long time. And I would just be angry and irritated and frustrated. And then he'd show me something good again and I'd start kind of climbing that hill. I'd get near the top and Zack Snyder would punch me in the nuts again. Just so irritating to watch this movie. The pacing and editing just sunk this film. I mean, just destroyed it. So, um, so let's see. The uh, Wonder Woman. The uh, how was your how was your Wonder Woman take? I'm starting off with 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 the stuff that people you know people say you know it's good. Wonder Woman. Uh, Gal Gadot was way better than I expected. She's still too damn skinny to play Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman's supposed to be, you know, you look at Wonder Woman and you're supposed to go, man, she could beat my ass down. You don't get that with Gal Gadot. You just look at her and go, wow, she's hot. <laughs> Which, I mean, is, is great. Wonder Woman's also supposed to be hot. But you know what? That's nitpicking. Gal Gadot did a good job with everything she was capable of doing a good job with. And I am super excited to see her in a standalone film. She was super good for the amount of time she was allowed to be on the screen. Yes, which unfortunately was not enough. And the one moment of unadulterated glee I got from this film was watching Wonder Woman draw a sword and literally fly. Not, I mean, maybe it was an extreme jump, but it looked like she might've been flying into battle against doomsday it was just like one of those ooh, clap 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 you know so excited that i'm actually seeing this happen on screen unfortunately that was the only moment where that happened where there wasn't some jaded cynical part of me saying yeah but i remembered what happened five minutes ago and i hated it <laughs> so um uh what about how about murdery batman you know what I'm not as down on Batman as many well, other people are, but I, by let me, the way, I think, okay, go ahead. Sorry. Let me, sorry. let me finish this because there's, this is a very sticky situation for me. Mm. Okay. One, Batman does not murder face people. He just doesn't, but I'm going to let that slide. Not entirely. I'm acknowledging <laughs> that it should not happen, but they delivered a Batman whose age and just, exhaustion really bled through he was a he was a batman who was believable that he was a little bit just teetering on the edge of i'm just gonna do what it takes to get done now even that batman shouldn't kill people but they put in enough little hints here and there and affleck did a good job with the role that batman's motivations were at least mostly believable 
Mostly. Mostly. The, he uh, he was the best character in the film, and it's not close. Now, considering that the Joker is alive in this universe, we know this. Is Suicide Squad part of this? Because I thought about that is. in the middle of the movie, and then I couldn't decide whether it was, and then I realized it just didn't give a shit. Well, um, I think it's I, I, the reason. Only reason I thought it was important uh, is because um, so this movie kind of wants to wants to pull from Dark Knight Returns. Yeah, but the the only way you could change that you know that uh, that Batman kills is if you're post the end of Dark Knight Returns. Yeah, mm-hmm. and. If the Joker is still alive, then you're not. No, because and you've the, you haven't given and, Batman that moment where he completely broke. Yeah, and well, and but it's also that thing that the the reason for the Joker's existence. The Joker is the constant test to Batman. The uh, you know it's it's the temptation to go that step that you know that step further. And if and the uh, if Batman is going to kill one person on er, on the whole planet, it's the Joker. It's the Joker, mm-hmm. and nobody else dies before the Joker. The uh, and I think that's that's part of the thing that uh, I felt was what, what causes the character to kind of not the character to not work. You know, not you know Ben Affleck acted the hell out of it, but I'm just I thought saying, he was good. The, yeah. But but the character itself, I mean, what they have him do, is does not fit. No, it doesn't and fit because he's inconsistent. Yep. He kills some people, but he, then there's a big battle at the end where he doesn't kill anyone until well, the very end but, of that battle. Yeah, until the end of that battle, and it's just because, it's nonsensical. Yeah, because evidently at that point it's better to you know if he's going to kill people, it's you know. Evidently, it's better to kill somebody in a fiery pain, fiery inferno than just to shoot them. Well, and th- that whole scene, and this is near the end where Batman's rescuing Martha uh, Kent. And, oh, yeah. Okay, we'll talk about the name later. But, <laughs> um, but Batman fights a room full of thugs, literally a dozen of these guys. And he doesn't kill any of them as far as I remember. Not directly, anyway. Uh, and But then he gets into a room where a guy is holding Martha, and it's just a guy with a flamethrower. Now, he's just toppled a dozen wasn't baddies. Part, wait, wasn't there a part of that where, like, a brief moment where he basically, a gun, uh, like, he's he, he kind of swings a gun that shoots for everybody else, or he swings somebody who has a gun that shoots Somebody who has guy? another, uh, has a gun, I think. Yeah. So, okay. Sorry, but, go on. That's one of those things I can let that slot. Uh, Batman's not picking up the gun, but you know what? Everybody draws a line in the sand at different places, and that's fine. But then he gets to this scene where he has one villain left. He's Batman. He has two dozen ways to take this guy out. But he does it. He decides to take him out in the most violent and explosive way possible thereby ruining one of the better scenes in the movie which had just preceded it that's what this movie does over and over and over again 
it builds it up so it could sucker punch you. Yeah. And now I may have missed one or two times here, but as far as I can count, the two protagonists, uh, Bass and Soups, smiled a total of three times. Two of those times was immediately preceding or following a violent death of whoever was standing in front of them. <laughs> I told okay. you, I, I, I told you earlier, Batman's kind of a sadistic fuck in this movie. He is, big time. But Superman did it too. The first scene you see Superman, he smiles at this terrorist and then bashes this terrorist through a giant stone wall, which would obviously kill him like 19 different ways. That's the only time uh, Superman smiled in the film, as far as I know. And that was the first time he was on screen. And I just knew things were just not going to go that well for me in the theater at that moment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was kind of sad. Well, you know, at least of all, you know, at least of all, they worked in that. Um, they worked in that Easter egg. Oh yeah, uh, Jimmy Olsen. Right. <laughs> the the um, that version. Uh, uh, what is it? The uh, Zack Snyder's two Easter eggs both involve involve a previously, you know. A character important to the DC, you know, important to either Superman, the Superman's, uh, you know, cast of characters or Batman's character of characters having been either murdered on screen or having been previously murdered. Yeah. And <laughs> because what... that's because if Zack Snyder is going to do an Easter egg, it's going to involve murder. Yeah. I didn't mind the Robin Easter egg. I thought that. Uh, the, well, ro- it was the, Robin e- the Robin Easter egg. That's kind of a funny phrase to turn. Mm-hmm. But I thought it did a good job of aging Batman and explaining his exhaustion. That mm-hmm. one didn't bother me. But there, there are these flashbacks throughout this movie and flash forwards and dream sequences. And you know what? You can never tell the difference between any of them until they're done. And then you sit there for 30 seconds, confused out of your goddamn gourd, trying to figure out what you just saw on screen. So obviously and those so un- scenes and are so bad. Unnecessary. So unnecessary. You could cut every single one of them out of the movie. The movie would actually be better. Now, that's a huge problem. And I wonder how it made it through the editing and test screening process with that stuff. And there are all these dark side Easter eggs littered throughout the movie. And now, as a comic geek, I saw them, but they are so vague and so haphazard that even though I got them and most of the audience didn't, I was bored <laughs> because I was like, dude, you're not telling me anything. You're you're throwing an Easter egg and teasing something that might vaguely occur in the future, but this is also a dream sequence, or is it? I'm not really sure. So why are you showing me this again? And wait, that's dark side. Okay. So again, is this the future? Is, are you hinting at something that might happen or is going to fuck you, Zack Snyder? And that's the internal conversation I had every time. Yeah. That, that whole sneak, that whole scene with the flying demon things. And, uh, I forget what they're called. Um, Oh, parademons, parademons, parademons. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. That whole scene is un, is not only unnecessary, 
but seemed it seemed like its only purpose was to make it so they could put it in a trailer to confuse or mislead yes. everybody. Yes. The uh, it was I've never seen a scene that looked like it only existed to be in the trailer before because it otherwise is unimportant. We're Oh, it's we're worse giving... than unimportant. It's confusing. It takes the audience completely out of the story. It disorients the audience and anytime you disorient the audience in that capacity, you've lost them for, you know, several minutes at the very least. And therefore they're not engaging with your story because they're still trying to figure out what happened on screen. It was a, it was an unadulterated mess. It was just sloppy, messy, and bad. Yeah. Well, cause it, it, cause there's no reason for him to be thinking parademons. No. And then the flash shows up yeah. in the, which is easily that entire sequence. And it starts with the flash and then it goes into this whole dark side, futuristic Superman oppression scene that is, just pure utter nonsense and the flash has the most useless appearance he appears to bruce wayne and he says is this the right time you can't trust him is this the right time and then instead of explaining like who he's not supposed to trust he just again asks something like is this the right time or, and you can't trust him. And if the Flash has a time machine or some way to travel time, that is the shittiest use of technology ever. Because <laughs> you know what, dude? I'm going to show dude? up and fuck things up. <laughs> you know what, dude? Write a note. Hand it to him. Something. I mean, or, you know, if you have six words that you can actually get out, just say those six words. Like, did you not think about this even a little bit beforehand? And so the audience is sitting there scratching its head going, what the hell is happening? And then it launches into this scene of like this post-apocalyptic dark side, Superman is a bad guy thing. And oh, just the wheels come off at that point. I think I know what Zack Snyder was trying to do, but I came off. Piss me off. That's what he was well, trying to do. <laughs> well, he did that very well. Um, the uh, What he was trying to do was he was trying to tease that future threat. And that the uh, and the problem was is that everything he was doing was too easily uh, confused with trying to say what was going on in the movie that we were watching. Yeah. Um, and part of the reason is because people were confused. We're confused in the fucking movie that we are watching. So we're desperately reaching around for clues. Yeah. Like, tell us the fuck what's going on in this movie, Zach. Yeah, because if you give us information, we're guaranteed to to think that it applies to what we're watching right now. Yeah, and, and that didn't apply at all. Yeah, I mean, it had yeah. nothing to do with the film we were watching. And oh man, I, he had so much on his plate with this film. What the f was he thinking by trying to add even more to it? You know what? Let if you're going to introduce Doomsday or not Doomsday, sorry, Dark Side. Do it in the post-credits. Tease it. You know, uh, Marvel did not introduce the Cosmic Cube into the middle of, like, a random Iron Man movie. They teased it at the end. And the fans who were there and knew what the Cosmic Cube was got all excited. Ooh, one of the next movies is going to have the Cosmic Cube. They didn't plop it into a six-minute-long scene right in the middle of the effing movie. Yeah, because it's just unimportant to that movie. Oh. The uh, it's completely need... unrelated to that movie. 
Yeah, we're here to watch the story. We're here to watch the story you're presenting us. We're not here to watch the story you're presenting us three years from now. Mm-hmm. The uh, so there is just so much that's just it, so much is just it's just a mess. But and but then that problem is is that so much of that would be would be forgivable if the right if the movie that we were watching the plot of the in the story of the movie we were watching was coherent. Um, the, uh, I mean, take all those elements out and there's still incoherent plot elements littered through it and things oh, that just don't absolutely. make sense. I mean, Lex Luthor, Lex Luthor is a, somehow a businessman that everybody seems to respect, yet he is clearly out of his fucking goal. You know what? And I actually found this out after the fact and I didn't watch the scene because I haven't, I hadn't seen BVS at that point. But apparently there's a scene that when he enters the spacecraft or something, he does something. I think it's when he enters the spacecraft. Something happens to him that pushes him over the edge. Now, don't you think that that scene should have been there and the six minute long baffling future, not future scene should have been removed? Because Lex Luthor might have made a little bit of sense at that point. Yeah, but I thought that he—I thought that he was a little bit off before that. Yeah, he was a little bit off, and he was a little bit excitable. And I'm not saying they did a good job with the character. I, I didn't like the character except for one scene. And but wouldn't the character have made more sense? And wouldn't it have made the entire arc more palatable had you seen something occur to him or happen to him that caused him to go over the brink? An outside agent, yeah, that would have made yeah. a lot more sense. Yeah, and it was cut out of the movie. And it's, I don't know what the hell was going on with this movie. And to go back to the pacing and the futuristic dream scene and just, like, ripping the audience out, one of the best scenes in the movie is Lex Luthor and Superman on the roof of a skyscraper. Now, Luthor does something to Lois Lane, which I thought was kind of stupid but then superman comes back and starts talking to luther and the dialogue is engaging it's believable you could actually see somebody like lex luther believing what he's saying and it points out some of the problems of superman existing it was one of the better scenes in the movie and i was like and then at the end lex luther forces superman to go fight batman at least kind of forces him not really Kind of, yes, no, not really. Um, but then immediately after that, and you're you're excited. You're like, okay, this is the showdown. This is the end of the movie. This is, you know, we're ramping up to the end. The movie immediately cuts to Wonder Woman sitting in front of a computer. <laughs> scrolling through an email at a speed that would make Stephen Hawking go, speed it up. <laughs> And then it introduces these scenes of the Flash and Aquaman staring at the camera for seven minutes <laughs> and Cyborg being created. Again, completely shattered any excitement you had about Batman v Superman. With, because that was supposed to be the actual Batman v Superman part of the film. Um. And it just completely shattered it. And that scene went on for, oh, at least three minutes, probably more like four or five. It was forever. And that was, I damn near 
yelled at the screen at that moment because I was actually excited. Again, I was excited. I was sucked in. I'm like, yeah, we're going to see Batman and Superman fight. Even though it doesn't make sense that they're going to fight, we're going to see it. <laughs> and then I get to see a hot chick stare at a computer for five minutes. What the fuck, man? <laughs> I love this so much. <laughs> um, it makes my day. Um, the uh, This is why I made you go see the movie. Yeah. Uh, so it was the 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 fight the fight between Batman and Superman. The, the 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 problem with the the fight between them is that it is robbed of any sensible context. No, because the worst part about it is is right before the fight in the Lex Luthor scene, before you're so abruptly ripped out to watch Wonder Woman surf the internet. Um, Superman has the realization you've been waiting for this entire film. He has no reason to fight batman they're on the same side now you're i'm like yes finally somebody's using a little bit of common sense here so superman approaches batman and says dude bro we don't need to fight right thumbs up and then batman says no we have to fight and (laughs) superman instead of just flying 50 feet away and saying no bro we don't have to fight he gets mad and punches batman and then the fight starts, which admittedly the fight is actually pretty good. But still, there was that moment where I said, wait, this fight might not happen because Superman is actually showing a little bit of common sense. Nah, not so much, bro. No, no. Well, see, now, and here's what, have made, what would have made so much sense is if they had them not fight because they could, then they really could have saved um, they really could have saved the real context for Dark Knight Returns for mm-hmm. a moment where it made fucking sense. Yeah, because Superman literally, literally, I'm not exaggerating here, literally had zero reason to fight Batman. As we find out in the movie, uh, Metropolis and Gotham are across the river from each other, which is news to anybody who's ever picked up a Batman or Superman comic. Now, Batman has been fighting crime for 20 years, give or take. But apparently now is the time where Superman's like, no, bro, you can't do that. You need to stop being Batman, bro. They're across the river from each other. What, <laughs> what, what, the, where, what was Superman doing all this time? Like, it made sense that Batman only had 18 months to respond to Superman. So he's building armor and he's doing all these things to try to figure out how to defeat him. Superman has no such problems. He could just, he didn't even have to fly. He could have walked. He could have taken a taxi (laughs) over to Gotham and said, no, bro, don't do this. That's wrong. I'm intentionally using the word bro every fourth word because this. this, It's a big bro. It's a big bro down. This entire movie is a huge bro down. Yeah, the uh, well, so we have the problem with them. We have the problem with them fighting for no real sensible reason. Um, and then it, I just watched uh, Dark, the animated Dark Knight Returns. And what's so funny is because I, I wanted to show my wife that this is okay, this is the story that they were kind of stealing pieces from. Mm-hmm. You know, they were trying to, they were trying to work this in. Um, the, uh, I said, and 
Dark Knight Returns has reasons. You yeah, know, absolutely. The, you know, the it goes to the core of Superman basically cooperating with society. Um, the uh, and Batman works in spite of society. Mm-hmm. The uh, and the uh, when Superman will follow will follow orders. And the uh, and when he's told to stop Batman, even though it's, it's his friend, he doesn't. Um, well, see, that the, is, the difference there is um, that Dark Knight Returns is an Elseworlds story. It doesn't it happen is, yeah. in continuity. And it's more of a what-if story because Superman doesn't follow orders. It's a story well, about what if Superman started following orders. Well, it's not just it's not just that. It's I think I think that kind of robs it of exactly kind of everything that happens in that story. I mean, he you know there's a lot of stuff that has led to believe that. I mean, basically, he's following what the rest of the people wanted in that they wanted a lot of basically most of the superheroes to stop working. Yeah. Um, and in that world, basically Superman is still pretty much the only one that's allowed to keep cooperating because he basically works as an agent for the government. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, uh, and, uh, and Batman and Batman working again is breaking that agreement and the, uh, and thus putting them on other sides of the fence. Um, you know, them putting in that range. But of course, you know, Superman does not want that confrontation. No. The, uh, you know, you know, he knows who Bruce Wayne is and he wants his, and he doesn't want to fight his friend. Nope. And without that friendship, again, it's just a bro down. And I've said this yeah. since I, since the movie was announced, I said, you can't emulate dark Knight returns without the friendship because, it's just a bro down at that point, and it loses its impact of two people who don't want to fight each other being forced to fight each other. Well, and then and then it really does mean something when this aged Batman who spent all this time through this time showing you know this one last time trying to leave this lasting legacy of the people of people um, standing up and making their own society better. Yeah. Um, them actually doing it and not waiting for, uh, you know, not waiting for heroes to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Superman comes there and there's this in brilliant context to it. it because Batman just beat down the, you know, the, the head of, you know, the, the evil, the mutants essentially. I mean, he had he, in the end of the kind of like the first part of it, he kind of, he beats down the head of the mutants to, to basically swing the people saying, you know, the, uh, you know, this, you know, basically saying that, you know, we can follow, you can now, you know, um, your leaders can, your leaders can fall. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you, you know, it's, it kind of, kind of takes a leap that all of a sudden he can swing everybody to be good people. Um, but he becomes the cult of personality. Um, and then he still, and then the Joker escapes and then, and then Batman is finally forced to make that, that, you know, fateful decision. But when he fights Superman, it's very much like when he's fighting the, you know, the leader of the, the mutants in that story. 
it's a he's he's kind of sending him he's kind of setting a message mm-hmm. you know he's saying that you know even you know we can you know essentially normal people can do this in a weird way um so when he fights superman it's i think it's an important uh, important message that said even you know no being a power is untouchable the uh and that he's saying a message that you know if you know if he can if if he can beat superman then people can do you know then people can kind of do anything mm-hmm. um they can protect their own world yeah um the uh which is it's kind of its own message i mean you could read into it really a lot of what you want you could t- tear all that away and basically say that you know bruce wants bruce wants ba- uh uh superman to see him as an exact equal um but by the end of it um you know not only does batman get to make his point but it also doesn't adulterate superman yeah you know one of the weirdest things about this film is that there were virtually no actual superheroes in the first 90 minutes of it. I mean, virtually none. Uh, the scene where Batman tries to steal the kryptonite. And as it turns out, Lex Luthor is masterminding all of this. And he's doing it in the vein of Luke Skywalker in Return of the Jedi, where he plans this incredibly complex thing that fails five times but somehow exceeds because he planned for it to fail five times um and yeah there were just no superheroes i felt like uh jeff goldblum are there dinosaurs on this dinosaur tour (laughs) uh yeah um what's amazing to me is that's basically kind of it's i mean kids see superhero movies and they go, well, it's a superhero movie. I should be able to go watch superheroes. Yeah, this movie is scary as hell, man. Yeah. Like, it is so violent and dark. Well, and it's marketed, I mean, it is marketed to kids. I mean, the, uh, I mean, yeah, it's a big gladiator fight. They play that up. But, you know, with all the toys and everything, I mean, you can't say, they can't say that this was, uh, you know, not marketed to kids. No, uh, um, I mean, anytime it has Batman and Superman affixed to it, and it's a huge market release like this, the the strong implication is that it's kid friendly at least a little bit. And I mean, I, this movie I, I made went... Christopher Nolan's um, Batman movies look G rated. Yeah, and I would not. I wouldn't take my kids to this. No, no, no way. No um, way. It's, it's, I, I mean, I would take, I mean, I guess the kind of mass destruction and carnage that happens in Man of Steel is the kind that kids will kind of just not consider. Yeah, because they're not thinking, well, how many people are in those buildings? You know, how yeah. many this or that? Yeah, it's very abstract violence and it's, you know, chaos and destruction, but it doesn't show people being branded and some of the more horrific things that occur in this movie yeah that's the other you know the other form of bat murder saying he knows he's sending people to prison who die yeah even though that reason doesn't make any 
sense, really. Although, um, he, yeah, because <clears throat> why would people care that? Yeah, it's nonsensical. Be like, oh, dude, you got caught by Batman. I guess I have to murder you now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, did they murder half the cell block? Because <laughs> is that like saying you got caught by the police? I guess you have to murder you now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the uh, so that part really didn't make sense, but it does it, you know, them adding that extra part further made the um, whole thing about um, Batman, you know, you know, Batman murder, not make. It was like, he, he knows it, so therefore he knows he's causing people to die. But as far as I could tell, he only did it twice. Yeah. I, I don't even know. This movie just, it had well, so many it... little things like that that just dropped in and out so quickly that you don't know why it was, it, it, and you're constantly asking yourself, why was that there? Why well, they was imply, that there? I mean, they imply, though, that, you know, it's happened more than a few times. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe I missed that part. I was just every, you know, every twenty minutes or so, my eyes would glaze over, and I'd be just in a complete state of I have no idea what's occurring on the screen in front of me. So that could have been one of those moments. I don't yeah. know. This movie's editing. I just can't stress how bad it was. Yeah, I'll, it's just a, a lot of stuff. It was didn't... such a complete failure of storytelling in the capacity of telling an actual understandable story yeah the um it makes you wonder sometimes that if they actually watched the movie from beginning to end before they actually put it out like no 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 no. stop watching the little snippets Mm -hmm. sit down watch this from beginning to end and tell me that it makes sense yeah um and the end in case somebody hasn't seen it yet uh we won't spoil it but dude i i think i already did a good job of spoiling the uh, last weekend. No, maybe I didn't do much. No, um, I mean I I knew going no, no, in. No, no, I knew go, going in no, what gonna was going to happen. But no, we're going to talk Doomsday. Oh, we're going to talk Doomsday a little bit. But Superman does something so incomprehensibly stupid that again it tears you right out of the film because again there were five different ways he could have approached the situation with Doomsday. And they all would have ended better than the way they did. And yet, because apparently dramatic things needed to happen, even though these dramatic things are nonsensical, and that's a problem throughout this movie, is drama is artificially created. Superman does something really, really stupid. I mean, insanely stupid. Literally, the person three feet from him could have fixed the problem. Yep. He he a, wouldn't even have to fully extend his arm to reach the person who mm-hmm. could have solved the problem. Yeah, and it's and it's not like it's not like he's handing off the handing off the problem to this person who has a near certainty of death. No, this person was much better equipped to solve the problem. Yeah. arguably pro- seemed to have been able to handle the problem without Batman or Superman being there. At all. <laughs> they could have said, no, no, it's okay. You know, you guys can take the night off. Mm-hmm. I'll handle the rest of this. Yep. You, you, you know, you seem really good at killing people that are 
your normal flesh and blood and breathing um, or, you know, seem good at burning them alive. And, you know, the uh, you can't hold the weapon that kills this thing. So, yeah, I got this. You know, you guys go, you know, order me a drink at the bar. Um, I'll meet you there in a little bit. Yeah, the uh, (laughs) it was so funny how the the night and day differences between um, Man of Steel and uh, Batman v Superman in terms of wanton destruction. Oh, yeah, he really stepped it up. Well, he he did it without killing people because that was evidently he the um, he was really irritated that there was that the um that people were upset that of all the mass killing yeah. that happened at the end of man of steel so he you know it's like oh look okay now they go into this place that is magically depopulated <laughs> there's a petulance to this movie and it yes. irks me from get-go because so many people were critical of man of steel about the wanton destruction so it's almost like Zack snyder spent the entire movie giving this very large segment of dc's fan base the finger and i'm like are you 12 dude seriously what what are you accomplishing by this are you so insecure and like why why are you doing this why it doesn't seem necessary Um, a a lot of the stuff that happens just does not seem necessary no so Uh, it's one of those things which is one of my tropes of storytelling or mechanisms of storytelling that irritate me the most the movie continues happening because five dumb things happened and it involves the main characters being borderline retarded to keep going down this path. Now, sometimes that makes sense. In Dare, like Daredevil, it makes sense because that's Matt Murdock's personality. That is a trait of his personality. It's, But Matt Murdock is never cerebrally an idiot. He doesn't do things that a logical person would say, no, this is dumb. I'm not going to do that. He and does this, things. This, he does things because he does things because he has some. He has. He has issues. Well, and they and they <laughs> refer that they refer to several times that he yes. seems to destroy, and break. He seems to to kind. Of, he seems to hurt those around him, mm-hmm. and you don't really understand it until you see it play out. Yep. The, uh, and yeah, it's so. But this case, movie exists because of character stupidity. Yes, the characters who are not supposed to be that stupid, uh-huh. um, and then the uh, characters that take easy routes when they normally wouldn't. Yep. Um, the uh, uh, Batman during that chase. I think Zack Snyder really did not like the idea of the the comic book Batman. Um, I think he he said no that that he he wanted to say that that character could not exist. Well, you know what? Maybe you uh, shouldn't make a Batman movie then. Yeah, that's the thing. That's yeah. the thing that sucks about it is that is that I think that he's trying to push his uh, he's trying to push that worldview that that no, the the world is far darker uh, a far darker place. When the the thing is though, but in Batman stories, the world is a dark place. Yeah. But Batman and Batman stands in contrast to it. Yeah. And in his own jacked up way. Yeah, if you remove the contrast, then 
he's just a nether nether you know vigilante in a world full of you know another dangerous thing in a world full of danger mm-hmm. um the uh i think that that's that's why i mean said you know that you know people can understand that there's when they when they talk about say well you know characters can change I mean we can't expect that they don't change but there's sometimes there's core reasons why people have stuck to certain things with certain characters yeah absolutely um, and when you change them you change the character you change why the character existed in the first place well like well, we not, talked not about necessarily like we talked about last time is these characters are almost 80 years old there are certain reasons why they are this way because they work this way and so not only do they work this way but there's an audience expectation that they will continue to work this way and you can't just invalidate that yeah it makes them it it just means that you chose the wrong character to tell your story absolutely I mean, and the thing is, is that you. I think it's ego to want to change that character. Yeah, but, it is. You know, make your. You know what? If you want to, if you want to say something else that other than what that character does its best saying, then make a different movie. You Pick know, another Al- character. Make a new one. Alan Moore had a hell of a lot to say about superheroes. You know what he did? He went and watched. He went and wrote The Watchmen. Yep, he made so. his own characters. Well, the, actually, uh, he didn't make his own characters. He well, hijacked a bunch from sorry, the forties. That's right. Sorry, but that's right. Nobody cared about him. Yeah. You know, that's that's why he used them. He had a story. He had he had commentary on superheroes, so he went and wrote his own superheroes. Yeah, instead of trying, you know, the uh, I, I think that it was you've seen writers go through different different superheroes. Um, and change the story a bit. So, example, we just talked about, you know, Punisher, Punisher and Daredevil meeting up. Mm-hmm. Even the even the writers that generally want, you know, kind of have, you know, issues with, you know, how those characters, uh, what do those characters normally do? They still kind of they honor what the character does, but they'll point out the flaws of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Without changing the character, they will they will um, they will highlight what they think what they think is is so what is wrong or but they don't go so far as to rewrite it. The Daredevil Punisher crossover, where Daredevil uh, Punisher is attempting to to show Daredevil essentially that the reason why his approach doesn't solve anything and when the and the but the daredevil you know daredevil counters with his you know kind of his philosophy and most of the time they do the meetups between the two from what i've read most of the time it's daredevil that comes out on top mm. uh, but only uh, the only time that, that really the punisher comes out on top you figure it's with a writer who is much more uh in line with wanting to say that the that the, what the punisher is doing is much more um relative relevant to the real world Mm. Um, and that was, uh, of course, Garthenus, who has a giant grudge against superheroes in general. Yeah. Um, the, uh, but even then, he still he still leaves the the Daredevil to be Daredevil. Yeah. He doesn't try to fundamentally change Daredevil just to suit his whims. 
No, he 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 basically punches around Daredevil in an, in another story, <laughs> you know, abusing him for his for for his beliefs. But he doesn't change the character. Zack Snyder is trying to change the characters to suit his worldview, um, and that's a mistake. The uh, and, and you know, if you want to have the world that you think you're trying to prove beat down the character, then do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you can torture the character, beat down the character, but you can't change them. Yep. Um, the, uh, they need, you, you can point out the flaws, but when you change the character itself, then you've actually, you, you've, you have done nothing to you've said nothing about your world as much as you have said that I don't think that these characters would exist at all. So I'm not going to make them exist. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, uh, I don't think it's a terrible movie. It's just an insanely frustrating movie for me to watch. And it was, in a word, disappointing. In almost every capacity that something like that can be disappointing because it would build me up just enough times to make me think that it might be coming out the other side in, in an okay place. And no, every single time it just knocked me back down. And I, I've got to have a criticism for um, the articles that I've read where people um, say, basically tell everybody that they're wrong mm-hmm. and that the movie is great. And everything that I see in those articles is all about it is all about people projecting onto the movie. Yes, so it's, much. They, they, they are they said, I, you know, I got to see this and I got to see this. And I'm like, yeah. I mean, you got to see lots of stuff. I mean, just because, just because all of those elements were, uh, you know, all of these things appeared, um, doesn't mean that the presentation was good. Uh, I have a perfect example of this. I hate the movie Godzilla, the night, the late nineties one. Mm-hmm. Nick, on the other hand, says, I got to see Godzilla destroy New York, and that's what I wanted from the movie. But never, ever have you argued that it's a good movie. No, I never have. <laughs> I, would, I would never go so far as to say that that movie was good. Yes. <laughs> the, uh, it, was, it was exactly, I mean, for its time. And I would probably say now that if I went back and watched it, since I've seen so many better, better mm-hmm. um, portrayals of that sort of thing happen, I would probably call it unwatchable now. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, it's totally okay to enjoy anything. I love Night of the Lepus. It is possibly the worst <laughs> movie ever filmed. I adore it with all my heart. There's you love nothing. Point, you love Point Break. Yes, and I love Point Break. There's nothing wrong with loving things for whatever reason you want to. But objectively, sometimes you have to admit that it's not very good. And yeah, there's, a, there's, just... there's a difference there. You can enjoy something while acknowledging that it's kind of a turd. Well, you can, you can, love, that Bat, that you can love that Superman punched Batman. Yeah. And that Batman, you know, puts up his arm and stops, you know, stops a fist. It was actually a pretty great scene. It was. You can enjoy that. Yeah. But don't tell me that the context of that was anything other than shit. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I mean, don't tell me that the way that ended was anything other than complete shit. 
I mean, I mean the the way that that whole thing ended was nothing other than Zack Snyder shitting in our mouths. <laughs> I mean, the uh, there is no there's no way you try try to tell me that that's good quality writing. That would be bad comic book writing in bad comic book writing in some of the worst comic books I've ever read. Yeah, I mean that's that that's you know. If, that's horrible writing for somebody who has one month to pu- push something out the door. Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention having two years to work on a project and somebody go, no, 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 really? Can we, can, can we, can we figure something else out? <laughs> I mean, anything. I mean, I don't care if Batman stubs his toe and the fight is over. I mean, this is horrible. Yeah, I mean, it, it really was. There was no motivation for any for that entire scene to happen, and it just again, there was no reason for it to start, and there was and there was no good reason for it, and the and the reason for that it ended was oh the worst my god, we haven't even brought that up, and you know what? Let's not because we're going really long here. Um, but, but, let's but, just, but they're bro, but they're yeah. but they're like bros from a similar. <laughs> yeah. They're mom name bros. But there, there's there. By the way, there there has been at least the movie gets the award for the for the most um, where the name Martha, the word Martha carried more so much importance. I mean, there yeah. will never be another movie where Martha is so much is a uh, is actually a plot point. Yeah, I mean, it is it is the highest. Um, it. The name Martha is now more prominent than it has been at any point since the Beatles wrote the song, Martha. Uh, you know, uh, whatever. Uh, happiness is one and, gun. And, and and by the way, if somebody starts name, if people start naming their their you know kids Martha, after this movie comes out, swear to God, those people need to be punched right in the head. Mm-hmm. Because everybody will know. Oh, where you get that? No, I know where you got that name from. Come here, come here, come here. No, no, come back, come back. <laughs> it's actually my grandma's name. Yeah, you know what? Lots of people's grandmothers were yeah. named Martha. You know, and that's why that scene resonated with me. I said, you know, when they screamed, that's the name of my mom or whatever. I was like, yeah, bro, I'm right there with you. Yeah, bro. Yeah, yeah. I Besties. totally get how you're reconciling your months-long differences of approaches because your mom named bros yeah yeah this is really yeah and now you should like finger hug or pinky hug or whatever um yeah it was just terrible i mean and the the motivations in this movie just didn't make any sense and it's just not a good movie it's it has a lot of great scenes (laughs) a a lot of of great scenes i'm a friend of your sons and so much that i just tried to kill him less than 20 minutes ago yeah but you know we're besties now yeah (laughs) Even though we haven't talked about anything, we've reconciled all our differences. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I just there was a New York Times article about say, saying how Batman, you know, about Batman Superman is good. And I was just like, really? Uh, really? Some, people, some people just enjoy being the contrarian. And you know what? I just don't give those people the time. 
you know, because some people honestly feed from being contrarian and I just, and they're seeking attention by doing it because it's, this movie's basically indefensible. It really is from a storytelling dialogue, motivation, everything aspect. It's indefensible. That doesn't mean it's a terrible, bad, terrible movie. I don't think it's a terrible movie, but it's an immensely flawed movie. I mean, flawed to the point of, in my opinion, being broken. But it's a, 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 you know, if I was to think on the Rotten Tomatoes score of things, I'd be like, you're kind of like a you're kind of like a 45. Yeah, 45, Uh, 50, because there were some really great moments. Unfortunately, every time those really great moments were followed by something truly, truly bad. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, let's get the hell out of here, man. I'm tired of talking about this movie. I'm going to go watch force awakens again. Oh, the, uh, are you? Uh, yeah, I watched it last night. I might watch it again tonight. Yeah. Why it's not? out on digital. It's out on digital now. Yep. Yep. The, uh, I, I've got the blu-ray coming tomorrow. Oh, right on. So, All right. Okay. Let's get out of here. We'll be back probably two weeks from now, but I'm not really sure. Thanks for listening, everybody. Be sure to drop us a line at countercomic at gmail.com. The <laughs> ambivalence. Eh, we'll yeah. be back sometime. Sometime. You can also visit our website at schlockworks.com, or you can view our podcast archives or check in on some of our other projects. If you are so inclined, drop by iTunes or Stitcher and give us a review. That's all I have for this week. I'm Brock Beauchamp. I'm Nick Emsing. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>